Welcome to Healing Minds, Stories of Resiliency and Recovery, a conversation held at the intersection of substance abuse, mental health, and everyday living. Your hosts, Mark Regala and Justin Wolf, bring both professional expertise and personal understanding to the table. So welcome to the conversation. Let's dive in. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin Wolf, and I'm joined here with Mark Regala, and we are bringing to you Healing Minds, stories of recovery and resiliency, sponsored by NAMI of DuPage. In our podcast, we're going to talk about and discuss the impact of substance use and mental illness on individuals' everyday lives and ways that people can reclaim their lives and lead a life of recovery. And what better person to do that with than the guest, my co-host that I'm joined here with, Mark Regala. And to start our series, what we feel would be the best way is for people to get to know just the stories in which we're bringing into the rooms and that we're bringing to this podcast. And so, Mark, if you would be happy and kind enough to kind of share with everybody your story and what brings you to us here today. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, so basically, I'm a, I'm a dual diagnosis patient. Um, my diagnosis is PTSD, general anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, and I also have subsequent alcohol and substance use disorder. Um, I mean, to, to kind of break it down, you know, the, the, the PTSD, I, I did not serve in the military, um, don't have a military background. Um, I, I pretty much had an ignorance when it came to mental health pretty much my whole life. Um, I wasn't diagnosed with any of these conditions over the age of 40. Most of my addiction issues were over the age of 40. So when I tell you it can happen anytime uh, in your life, it is true. It's non-discriminatory. It can pop up anytime. Um, but hindsight, looking back at it, there definitely was some issues early on. Um, the PTSD, like I said, I didn't have any military background, but it really came from childhood trauma. You know, some of the things I was subjected to, um, you know, with my family, you know, there was a lot of alcoholism, a lot of yelling, um, you know, some hitting and things like that as well. Um, you know, the anxiety, again, I just think it had to do with, you know, just being really jumpy as a kid, being around kind of a, a toxic environment um, pretty much most of my childhood. Uh, my dad ended up getting sober off of alcohol in like 1987 because his brother lost everything to alcoholism. He was my godfather. Um, but he pretty much just quit cold turkey. He didn't work a program or anything like that. Um, just being around that and, and, the, and the yelling and, and just, you know, some of the things you were subjected to. I, I was just a real anxious kid, a real jumpy kid. And I can remember my first panic attack, although I did not know it was a panic attack. Uh, I didn't even know I was getting panic attacks until, like I said, my diagnosis over the age of 40. Um, but my first, you know, panic attack probably happened in middle school uh, during a public presentation in history class. And I just remember locking up, not being able to get the words out, not being able to, to breathe, uh, sweating profusely, uh, heart beating out of my chest. And I remember stopping, like, not even a couple of sentences into the presentation and literally go into the back of the classroom and, and, and cry because um, I just didn't understand what was wrong with me. And, and that happened most through high school. Um, 
happened, you know, off and on through my adult life, but it really came back to fruition when I got into management of my profession, which I'm in the insurance industry. I've been in the insurance industry pretty much my entire adult life, and when I got into management, I had to do a lot of presentations, presentations at meetings, presentations at corporate events and so forth, and the panic attacks, you know, basically came back. Uh, as far as the depression goes, I'm not diagnosed with bipolar or anything like that. Uh, it strictly was situational, and, and honestly, I just didn't know how to cope with the stresses of life. Um, there was a lot of things that were happening. You know, my grandma was sick with Alzheimer's. Uh, my daughter got sick and, and was hospitalized in a psychiatric facility for, for about a month. Um, I had tremendous stress at work. I was a manager for an insurance agency on the south side of Chicago. I had a team of just under 30 sales representatives. Had to manage the marketing, had to manage their quotas, had to help them hit their quotas. You know, if they don't hit their numbers, they could possibly face termination or food can get taken off their table because they didn't hit a bonus or, or their paycheck got deducted because they didn't hit their quota. See so a lot of stress with that as well. Um, no work-life balance whatsoever. Um, I was the sole income provider of a family of six. I had four children, and my wife was a stay-at-home mom. Um, and, you know, just dealt with things in an unhealthy way. You know, I mean, my diet was poor. My diet pretty much reeked of depression. Everything I was putting in my body was depression, from the Diet Pepsi I was drinking to the alcohol I started to consume on a regular basis to the fast food diet that I was on. Um, I put on a lot of weight because exercise was non-existent, a lot of weight. Uh, and as a result, I developed a neck and back issue. And when I developed that neck and back issue, um, I was actually referred to a surgeon in, in Naperville, Illinois, because I was residing in Plainfield at the time. And the surgeon had me do an MRI, and the MRI did not show a pinched nerve. Um, but he also had me do an electromyogram and EMG, and the EMG did show a pinched nerve. And when he brought me in for the consultation, he pretty much told me I'm worst case scenario. He said that you got two conflicting test results. You got an MRI that shows one thing, an EMG that shows another. He's like, I don't recommend surgery because if you did have, you know, some form of like herniation, it would be in your C4 to C6 area, which is pretty much where your brain connects to your spinal cord. He's like, I can't go in through your back. I got to go into the front of your throat, move your trachea over. He goes, you talk for a living. It's a very serious surgery. And like I said, with two conflicting test results, it just doesn't make sense. So he referred me to a pain management doctor. And when he referred me to the pain management doctor, uh, I remember the first time I was there, um, he put together a curriculum of what we were going to do, like traction and stuff like that for my neck, but he also introduced me to prescription pain medicine and uh, muscle relaxers. And he was prescribing them in quantities that you really can't get today. Um, and he was prescribing them with refills, which you can't even get legally today. And, and that went on for a period of time. And, you know, what happened was I basically substituted the drinking with the pain medication because the pain medication helped with the physical pain, but it didn't take long for me to realize uh, that not only did it help with the physical pain, but it also helped with dealing with the stresses of life as well. I didn't see it as a form of self-medicating. Um, I didn't see it as an unhealthy coping uh, style. Uh, honestly, I didn't even know that the pain medication that the doctor prescribed me was an opiate. I didn't know what an opiate was. I didn't know it was basically a synthetic form of heroin that binds to your receptors, changes your receptors, and rewires your brain. And I didn't know that you can become physically addicted. I, I really had an ignorance when it came to the mental health side of things, because at this point, none of that stuff was diagnosed. Um, 
and I really had an ignorance when it came to the different types of medications that were out there. I mean, to me, doctor prescribed it. I'm taking it initially as prescribed. It was allowing me to sleep in my bed for the first time in a while with that neck and back issue. Um, but it didn't take long for me to start abusing those things and taking them during the day because it was easier to deal with the stress at work and taking a couple before I had to make a public presentation and all of a sudden getting through the presentation without a panic attack. And then once that started to happen, I was off to the races. Yeah. No, I mean, you're highlighting such a strong connection there between just what you're feeling and what you're going through emotionally, just the stress of everyday living and saying, hey, here's something that's kind of helping me take the edge off. And it's taking care of this emotional inner pain that I'm feeling at the same time. What was it that you were kind of recognizing, acknowledging that made you go, hey, this might be going a little too far for me? Um, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Probably the first time I ran through my pain pills uh, well before the end of the month, before the prescription refill was ready, mm-hmm. because that was the first time that I felt some form of withdrawal. But honestly, I didn't realize that it was withdrawal. I, because it really wasn't like a sickness, you know, like 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 a true like dope sick type of thing. Uh, it was just extreme fatigue. Like I just was extremely fatigued for a couple of days and just didn't feel right. It just kind of felt blah. My stomach was a little upset, um, you know. But then somebody actually explained to me, hey, you know, you're probably going through a, a withdrawal. I mean, you you went through 120 Norcos in a short period of time, you know, 21 days or 22 days, because that's what the doctor was prescribing them on a monthly basis. Uh, like I said, with several refills. And, uh, you know, I got this great idea of, you know, visiting a local tavern, because I know that you can get them there, and I would basically start buying them on the streets and fill my prescription bottle up again to get to the end of the month. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what's the same medication that the doctor's prescribing? Mm-hmm. I'm just filling it up to get to the end of the month to get to my refill. But again, I had an ignorance. I didn't know that, you know, the more I take, the more I'm going to get addicted, the more my brain's going to get rewired. And I certainly didn't realize the hell that it was going to put me through long term. And it got out of control and it got out of control fairly quick. Right. That's part where you're really kind of speaking like on the tolerance and how quickly the body adapts and changes and kind of saying, hey, like when the, when this story begins, the reason that I'm using is a lot different than where this story goes. Because if I knew how this story ended, I'd make a different choice along this way. 100% correct. I mean, I say it now that all the physical pain in the world, I, I'd go through all the physical pain in the world to avoid the anguish that I was put through to battle that addiction and try to get on the other side and get sober. Um, which is different than obviously what my mindset was back then. I mean, I just wanted relief from my physical pain, not realizing all the anguish I was going to be put through once I was introduced to that prescription pain medicine. Right. There was absolutely no way to kind of prepare for what you were about to go through. No. I mean, again, do I, I kind of blame myself because I trusted the doctor, but that's just kind of how I was raised. I really didn't know about these underlying conditions. I mean, I, I knew I probably had some anxiety, but like I said, I never knew that that was a panic attack. I never knew you could have PTSD uh, without serving in the military. And yeah, I mean, I felt down. You know, there was times I felt down with the stresses of life, stress of marriage. I mean, there was a separation at one point, then we got back together. And like I said, my daughter was hospitalized and you kind of have a guilt there 
you know, with the diagnosis because she was diagnosed with being bipolar and there were some issues there. And, you know, I learned my, I learned a little bit about, you know, bipolar. And, you know, as a parent, you kind of feel a little guilt because, you know, when I learned about bipolar, I mean, she had every symptom dating back to when she was a younger girl. And I just, we just didn't know. We just didn't know anything. So you almost have like a guilt there too. And, you're, you know, you're, you're doing this along with all the stresses of work and, you know, you got your older son and your older daughter, your son and your older daughter playing travel sports and you're just getting pulled in a hundred different directions and life just doesn't stop. So the easy solution for me, pop a few a few pills and have a couple of beers, not even realizing that that's probably healthy and there's other ways to cope. Right. And along that way, kind of seeing, hey, there's a lot of a lot of me needed in all these different relationships in my life. A lot of these other people really need me to be showing up. And at the same time, that's all I hear in your story is like, I want to be up and I want to be present for everybody everywhere. And I also got to make sure I'm taking care of my stuff at work, which is a big demand. Yeah, I wasn't taking care of myself. I put myself last. And the one thing I learned through this whole process is you got to put yourself first. I think the one area you got to be selfish in is with your, your health, physical and mental. Um, and that is so different than how I, than, than how I viewed things back then, you know, because I realize now I couldn't be the best spouse. I couldn't be the best father. I even couldn't be the best employee or manager to the company I was working for if I wasn't the best version of myself. But in the meantime, you know, when you're in it, and I do think that your brain sometimes tries to convince you and plays tricks on you, you know, you're thinking, okay, well, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta go to my son's baseball game. I gotta go to my daughter's softball game. Mm -hmm. We got a family party this weekend. We got a work function this weekend. I gotta be there for my employees that are trying to hit a, a quota for the end of the month. You know, and you're putting yourself last. And you know what? At the end of the day, you know, where does that leave you? I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, with me, wife filed for divorce. I got a strained relationship with my kids and that wonderful job that I had and that employer and all those employees that I was trying to help with their quotas are gone and very few of them reach out to me and here you are left you know by yourself trying to get yourself out of this hole and this hell that you dug yourself in so i mean i i do put myself first now but i, I didn't yeah. know for sure it just captures like the disease of addictions an isolating disease it rips you away from everybody and everything that really genuinely matters it gives like me a purpose we were talking about hey, I have to give so much of my children, and then the disease rips them away from you. Yeah. And your family, it rips them away from you. Yeah. And now, leading a life of recovery, how do you manage that stress that those losses are enough to kind of cripple a lot of individuals and really shatter their foundations? Well, I mean, I will say this, when I wake up in the morning, there's two questions that I ask myself. One is, what do I need to do to stay sober today? And I've been sober now for almost four years. I still ask that question every day. And then the second question I ask is, what do I need to do to have a good mental health day? And whatever those things are that I need to do that day, they're going to be done before everything else, which is so different than what my mindset was before. So if it is go to church on a Sunday, if it is go to a support group meeting or an AA meeting, uh, if it's hitting the gym, um, if it's after a stressful day at work, going for a walk around the lake and listening to some music, um, whatever I need to do, I, I do. And I make that a priority. 
uh, right down to the diet and the foods that I put into my body. Um, you know, I, I found out, you know, what to put in my body that helps like with the brain chemistry and the serotonin levels and what screws up those brain, the brain chemistry on some of those levels, you know, with like a high saturated fat diet or with some of the other foods, foods you can put in your body as well. Um, it was a learning process, you know. Some of the stuff I was on a quest on my own. I said at the end of my addiction um, that I kind of was living my life like an oxymoron. And it's going to sound crazy, but I do a lot of speaking at the hospitals, and I cannot tell you how many people come up to me after I speak at the hospital and they tell me they were doing the same thing. But I remember being up in my room, obliviated, watching YouTube videos on recovery and watching uh, keynote speakers at an AA meeting or watching videos about, you know, diet and things like that. And honestly, mo most of the time at the end, I was in blackout, but for whatever reason, some of those videos stuck, you know? I mean, it, it, they, they, they were in the memory banks. And I, I mean, of course I went back and, is this how I remembered it? And I would do a search and find it. But, you know, I always say that nobody wants to get sober more than the addict or alcoholic themselves. They just don't know how to get out of the hell that they're in. And it, it drives me nuts when I hear they don't want it or they don't, or they, they don't want it bad enough or, you know, they're not trying. They just don't know how. They, they, they need to be guided, you know. And, and for me, um, the guidance came really from people that have lived life experiences that battled the same type of addiction that I had, which was opiate addiction, and they pulled themselves out. They're living a life of sobriety. They do speaking at the hospitals, and I just happened to be in a psychiatric facility, a local psychiatric facility, where one of those gentlemen happened to speak, and he was an opiate addict in recovery. And for whatever reason, that was the hope and inspiration. I, mean, I just happened to be there at the time that he spoke, and that provided the hope and inspiration that I needed. Because up until that point, I thought I was a dead man walking. I didn't think there was any way out of this hell that I was in. Because I mean, it was, it was, it was, it, it happened so quick, Justin. And there were so many things that happened in a short amount of time. I mean, I had a day that I overdosed twice on the same day. I had a car accident where I went through the windshield of my car and woke up on a ventilator. I had two visits to a psychiatric facility, uh, four visits to alcohol and substance use. Um, I mean, it was, I mean, ultimately what led me into that psychiatric facility that at the time that I actually heard that gentleman speak really was coming off my worst overdose where literally first responders basically revived me. And I woke up in the intensive care unit at that hospital and they were pumping me full of medication because they said that my kidneys and my liver had sustained some damage. And they weren't even sure at that time that it was going to be reversed or not. Um, but they did tell me straight up, if it gets reversed, you're going down to the psychiatric facility to get the help that you need because the condition that we found you in was so brave that they actually classified it as a suicide attempt because they said I had suicidal ideologies because the amount of drugs and alcohol that were found in my system. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, you know, the, the functions in the liver and kidney started improving, started reversing. I found myself in that psychiatric facility, and I just happened to be down there when that gentleman spoke. And that gentleman, um, you know, there, there were two things that happened in that hospital. One, a phone call from my mom and my sister that basically said, Mark, we know you're sick. You just need to focus on getting better. We accept you for who you are. You're just sick. You know, you just got to do what you got to do. And uh, I, I, I think from hearing that, that was important. And that was right before I went down to the psychiatric facility because you know, up until that point, 
I mean, everything that was important to me was gone. I mean, I felt abandoned, if you will. And to hear my mom and sister say, hey, we're going to be here every step of the way. You're sick. We accept your sickness. Just work as hard as you possibly can to get better. That, in a roundabout way, allowed me to accept my disease, if that makes sense. And then going down there and going down there at the time that I went down there and hearing that gentleman speak, so now you got the acceptance and now you got the open inspiration and now you got a little momentum created to go to subsequent treatment afterwards and then you know, IOP afterwards and start, get, you know, start getting a sponsor and working the steps and, and start doing support groups with NAMI and just start doing all the little things that kind of led me to where I'm at today, if that makes sense. Right, I mean, just the power of saying, hey, there was some damage caused by everything in the turmoil of my addiction and the behaviors I came in that at times we can feel like we're undeserving or like there's no possible way anybody would want to be around me, love me, support me. And here you are having family say, you know what, Mark, this disease and these actions, these behaviors don't define you as a person to us. Correct. We see you as a person who is deserving of love, support and appreciation. And what a powerful message to receive Ooh. at a time when it was most needed. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell how critical that was. At the time, I really wasn't being a good patient. I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to fight security guards in the hospital because I was refusing to go down the psychiatric facility. And the psychiatrist came in and basically said, "No matter what you say, no matter what you do, you're going down there because the condition we found you in." And honestly, mm -hmm. I don't know this is fact. I never really talked to my mom about this, but I think the psychiatrist probably told my mom to call me. Because it was like right after that conversation, my mom and my sister called me, and they just happened to say the right thing. Whether the doctor told her to say that, I don't know, but it definitely it, it set a tone, that's for sure, to go down there and try to work hard and get better. And like I said, just hearing that gentleman at that time, it was just a timing thing. You know, it just, it just like the stars lined up, you know, it was an aha moment, if you will. And I kind of just took that momentum and just started writing it. I mean, I have not used alcohol or any form of drug or mind-altering substance since the day that that first responder revived me on the kitchen floor in my parents' townhouse. And that's just a testament to like all the hard work and dedication and commitment that you've put in to saying, hey, you know what? Instead of tearing Mark down, I'm gonna start building Mark up and treating him the way I that he deserves to be treated. Like I care about him and I'm actually concerned about how this plays out. How would you say that relationship that you've built with yourself has changed from when you were in your active addiction to where you are today? Well, I mean, I feel comfortable in my own skin. I mean, I can sit here on a podcast and tell my story as opposed to living and hiding in shame and guilt, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've said this before. I mean, I've spoken in other podcasts and you know, I've spoken publicly, you know, at different mental health forums and stuff like that. For whatever, and I've been in the insurance industry for 30 years, and I've won a lot of, I won a lot of awards in the insurance industry, won a lot of trips, you know, and, and, and honestly, I could, I could, I could, I could say this with certainty. I feel like I get more respect, okay, and get more attention for fighting that fight and getting sober and living a life of recovery than I've ever gotten with any professional award that I've ever attained. And sometimes I feel uncomfortable uh, about it, you know, because at the end of the day, I mean, I did a lot of damage, you know, to my family, my wife, my kids, and so forth. But at the same time, I got to remind myself, I mean, that I, because I don't, 
as much as I feel bad about it, I don't regret it because it made me the man that I am today. And I'm much more comfortable with the man that I am today than I was with a man that was successful in the insurance industry but was going down a rabbit hole battling alcohol, drugs, and depression. I mean, talk about just look at walking that uphill battle. And that's just kind of what recovery is. It's like, hey, I'm going against everything my mind, my body, and my environment is telling me that I can kind of continue to walk down that same path. And yeah. that's the. I mean, somebody used this analogy with me early on, and it made sense. Um, you know, I mean, they gave me the old analogy of, well, if you get attacked in a dark alley, are you just going to let that person beat you up? Or are you going to fight like hell to survive and, 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 and get out of their life? So no, I'm going to fight like hell and survive and get out of their life. They're like, well, why would you let the drugs and alcohol beat you, beat you to suppression? Mm-hmm. you got to fight the same exact way. It's not an alley fight. It's an everyday fight, you know. But if you fight like, like hell and do the things you need to do, you can win that battle, Mark. And, you know, I, that, that resonated too, you know, that analogy. Right. Yeah. Saying, hey, I, I'm deserving. Back, back again to instead of me saying, hey, I'm going to take this. Because it gets to this point where it's like, hey. I'm going to take all this. And if I wake up, so what? Yeah. If I don't wake up from this, then that's what it is. Right? We get to like this pa- this point of just like not even caring if we're going to see the light of day to now saying, I'm doing everything within my power. I'm going to fight like hell to make sure my life is actually a life that I want to be living versus just existing in and walking, going through the motions. Correct. You know, and I've been real transparent with it. You know, I, I I wasn't as transparent initially, and then I had a cousin um, end up passing away from alcoholism. And I only heard a couple weeks prior to her passing that she was battling, and I visited her at the hospital and, and tried to talk to her a little bit. And I think I provided some hope and inspiration, but I think it was too little too late because at that point her liver had already sustained too much damage. And, you know, I'm like thinking to myself, well, you know, if she would have known earlier all the struggles and battles that I went through, you know, maybe she would have consulted me a little earlier. So I'm like, you know what, I can't let her death be in vain. So I just started sharing stuff on Facebook. I mean, I didn't say, hey, I'm an addict. Now I do, but I mean, back then, I'm not, you can read between the lines with the post that I was sending. And what was so amazing to me was just by doing that, I started getting messages on Facebook Messenger. Like people read between the lines. And I mean, I got people I didn't talk to for you know 30 years from high school that are reaching out about themselves, about their adult kids, about their spouses, um, you know, former uh, uh, colleagues of mine at the company that ended up letting me go, reaching out to me, you know, about themselves, about their spouses, about their children. Um, you know, it's it's been, very self-serving. It's been very rewarding. Um, I mean, the miracles that I've seen, not only with myself, but also with some of the people that I've worked with, is incredible. Um, I mean, like I said, I I feel like I've gotten redirected, um, and I feel like, and in, 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 I just feel like God put me through the storm when He put me through the storm for a purpose. I mean, everything happened before COVID. Believe it or not, I got sober like right before or right around COVID. And I needed that year or two, okay? Ended up being two years because I got sober right before COVID, about a year before COVID. And then I had the extra year with COVID to really get my stuff together physically because I started working out and exercising. 
I guess not realizing what was to come, but what is happening right now, which is this mental health crisis and addiction and alcohol crisis that we're seeing right now. I mean, I almost feel that way that I was because, man, I, I I'm, I'm like one of two people standing, and the other gentleman's in jail. Everybody else is dead. I, I mean, seriously. I mean, it's like, why am I here? I mean, there's a reason why I am here. And I don't think selling insurance is the reason why I'm here. I think it's to tell my story, help others, and try to lead and try to give them guidance to help get them on the path to become a functional member of society again in a life of recovery. That's what I do, you know? I mean, several nights a week and sometimes on the weekends. It's just trying to live that life of service and try to be that, that beacon of hope, that inspiration for, you know, at least one person when I do a public presentation. I mean, especially carrying such a powerful message of hope that you're highlighting there. And that's where it's like, hey, all you got to do is like, you just got to hear that message. Like, just like you heard it from that speaker who spoke to you, that was resonating, that you were searching for that message, that light, even when you're intoxicated, trying to find it on YouTube, watching these speeches, then there it is right there. And to kind of now be in a position to also be that person because I've heard other people talk about you and your story and they come in and like, Mark, man, he's my guy. He gets it. He gets it. And that is just incredibly powerful to let other people be seen as people. And you're being the person that's giving them that gift. And what's interesting too, is again, because of the whole COVID thing and honestly, because of strained relationships, you know, like as an example, when I left that company or when a company let me go, um, <laughs> I, hey, it's all about how you frame it, man. You know, they're, 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 you know they're, there's been years since I've seen certain people, and some of the people, I, you know, I, I, there's one person in particular that I met for lunch last year, right between Christmas and New Year's, and the last time I saw him, I mean, I was in bad, bad, bad shape. And we met at a local restaurant, and, and this is not the first time it happened, and it's not the last time it happened, but with him it was probably the most profound because when he saw me, he got tears in his eyes and he hugged me, but then he literally sat on one end of the table and I sat on one end of the table and there were like no words spoken and I swear to God it was almost like he was looking at a ghost, like I was unrecognizable. Because I've changed that much just from the content that I'm bringing to the discussion, but also my physical appearance. I mean, I've completely changed and the body has morphed and I'm probably in the best shape of my life with going on 50 next year. Mentally, I'm solid. Spiritually, I'm solid. But at the same time, I realize I can't get complacent. You know, satisfaction is the first step to failure. you got to constantly strive to get better every single day. My goal tomorrow is to be better than I was today and build on, you know, the foundation that I've, that I've created. Um, you know, there's been a lot of weird stories that have happened too. Um, you know, one thing that I share, share, and I don't even know if I ever shared this with you in a conversation offline, but I was actually pulled over by the police officer that saved my life. Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you that story? Yeah, but I think it's a great story. <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, I was leaving my nephew's baseball game, and my sister had just sent me a picture of my nephew with his uh, World Series trophy. They won the championship. And I just happened to glance down and... Uh, I see the cop, and I'm like, oh, no. I get pulled over, get pulled over in this parking lot. Ironically, the same jewel parking lot that I met my wife when I was working at a jewel as a teenager, that's the lot that I got pulled over in. So everything is like a yeah. you know, full, you know, full circle moment here. 
you know, he gives me a little lecture about, you know, it's 7.30 at night, Roosevelt Road still got a lot of traffic, you really shouldn't be glancing on your phone. I explained to him, yeah, my nephew just went to the game. I'm just going to give you a warning, don't worry about it. Goes back, you know, make sure that everything is okay. My driver's license, that comes back. He goes, but hey, he goes, I got a question for you, man. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, uh, how are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, no, I did good. I worked today, went to my nephew's baseball game. I'm like, he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, how are you doing? I go, yeah, I'm fine. I went to my nephew. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, do you recognize me? I go, no, I don't recognize you. He goes, you probably don't. He goes, because you were in such bad shape that, 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 that evening. He goes, but I was actually the first first responder on the scene when I got the 911 call from your sister, and I'm actually the one that actually administered the Narcan before the paramedics got there. He goes, and I'll be honest with you. He goes, I didn't know if you were going to make it that night. He goes, and now I'm seeing you here a couple years later, and you don't even look like the same man. He goes, and I'm glad I pulled you over. He's like, because we go on so many of these calls on a daily basis, he goes, and we never know what the outcome is. And sometimes we think about it, you know, did this person survive? You know, is this person, you know, uh, okay, you know did he pass? You know, is, is he still battling? Whatever it might be. And to see you, it kind of gives me some inspiration of the work that I do because I see, you know, that one, you wouldn't be alive if we didn't do that Narcan, and two, kind of the life that you're living now. And it was such a cool conversation. And I always wondered who those guys were that were there that day. And, you know, he gave me his name and he gave me the other guys' names that were there. And I ended up um, sending lunch, you know, to the police station, thanking them for basically saving my life. I mean, it was just, it was a cool moment. But, you know, what are the chances of that getting pulled over by the same police officer that basically saved your life, you know? Right. I mean, you, there's all these examples here kind of showing where it's like, hey, this is something bigger than ourselves out here that are kind of like putting these pieces into place for these encounters to happen. Yeah. I mean, I left the gym. This just happened about a month ago, not about six weeks ago. I left the gym. I normally eat clean, but <laughs> this particular morning, I think uh, McDonald's had uh, two for three egg McMuffin or uh, sausage McMuffin sandwiches. So they're pretty much giving them away. I had a four, four Justin, just so you know. <laughs> they were all gone before I got to work. But here's the deal. I ordered four. I'm paying cash, and then I got to go pick up my food. And there's this lady that's taking my cash, and she grabs the cash from me, and she's putting, you know, she's putting it in the register, and she stops, and she looks at me, and she goes, can I ask you a question, sir? And I'm like, yeah, out of the blue. And she's like, are you in recovery? And I'm like, uh, yeah, why? She's like, I don't know, there's something on the inside that tells me that you're in recovery and you can help me. I'm like, well, what's going on? She goes, well, she goes, I'm battling alcohol really bad right now. She goes, I was planning on going to an AA meeting in St. Charles tonight. I just don't know what I'm going to do, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, holy crap, you know, so I gave her my name, gave her my number, got her in contact with somebody out there, you know. But, you know, where does that come from? How does that happen? Because I'm going to tell you right now, that hasn't happened just one time. That hasn't happened just two times. And I've had eyewitnesses most of the times it happened. You can't even count the amount of times that's happened probably on both my hands in the four years. I've, I've been in shows, cover bands, where people have just walked up to me and asked me that question. And I can't explain that, man. Right. But it happens a lot. I don't know if I just radiate it or <laughs> they see just something about you. 
got a fucking person walking behind you, had a, holding a sign. I'm not drinking, not drinking beer. I'm drinking water. You yeah. know, but I mean, maybe that's. But I mean, you know, one lady in particular asked me straight up. She goes, "Are you an opiate addict in recovery?" And I'm like, "Uh, yeah." Why? She's like, "I'm battling heroin." I'm like, "Well." Why are you? I mean, as a young girl, come up to me. I'm like, well, why? Are you? She goes, I don't know. She goes, there's just something that drew me to you. I, I can't explain that. And I've talked to other people that have survived a major addiction or alcohol, and you know they live a life of service, and they've had similar uh, stories. So I don't right. know if that's something that's common or not, but it's just you know. And honestly, that helped me get more spiritual too, because right. some of that stuff happened early on. You know, where I still was kind of him and hawing on the whole spiritual stuff. Right. Definitely. Because, like, hey, like, there's, if I need more examples about there being something bigger than myself out here in this right. world, exactly. like, these are examples of that. And let alone, we just walk it back and say, hey, even the fact that we're both sitting here in these chairs today, there is something out there bigger than ourselves enacting that has bigger plans for us because there's bigger, there's more than enough reasons why neither one of us should be present today and yet here we are correct able to have this conversation correct and talk about really what that gift of recovery is and how that even inspires hope in other people that they themselves can also live a life of recovery yeah you know and then again the one thing i mean honestly the one thing i never really knew and never put two and two together is you know when somebody's battling like and I was judgmental. I'll be the first to say it. I mean, I mean, if I saw somebody struggling, I'm like, what the heck's wrong with it? Now I look at that person, like, what happened in that person's life to put them in that position? Mm-hmm. You know? And I realize now that if somebody is battling alcohol or drugs, that it's most likely there's something going on on the inside. They're really dealing with a depression, or maybe they have some trauma in their life, you know, that has led to maybe some anxiety or PTSD. But there's something that's driving that obsessive or addictive behavior. And I never, I never, I never knew that before. Like I said, I guess as a society, as a society, we still have an ignorance when it comes to mental health, addiction, and how everything kind of intertwines and goes together. Uh, and I had that same ignorance, and I've learned so much along the way. And I try to share little little tidbits with you know people um, who aren't necessarily struggling but you know they tell me ah, you know my, my my kids got this going on or you know my cousins have got that going on and you know i just you know try to share some of the education and it just you could see the wheels in their head kind of turning a little bit like well you know maybe there is something to this well there is obviously but nobody's ever even taken the time to explain to them mm-hmm. how some of this stuff works right because you're talking about it's so much easier to be judgmental critical and harsh to other people because that just keeps us pointing our fingers at them. And guess what? Now I don't have to look at my own stuff because I'm busy looking at you and pointing out all these flaws and defects of character, right? Like now my stuff is fine, but no, nobody starts using or going down this path because their life is going great, grand and wonderful. There is something internally going on where it's like, hey, I'm having these internal struggles and I'm gonna look externally to try and solve this internal problem. Correct. And that is just saying, hey, if I can take a step back and what you were really speaking to earlier was like that gift of compassion being expe- being extended to other people and saying, hey, there's something else here going on. Yeah. Just like we need to extend that gift to ourselves when we're feeling hurt, when we're feeling down, sad, beaten up, 
instead of getting, you know, doubling down and talking incredibly harsh or judgmental, it's no. How would I treat a good friend that I saw in pain right now? And how can I give that same gift back to me? Because that's what I'm going to really need during these times. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, and this helped me early on, too. Is, I mean, I know the American Medical Association put the disease of alcohol in the same classification as cancer back in 1957, and I believe uh, substance use disorder in 1987. So, I mean, it's the same category as cancer. So, you know, we wouldn't, I mean, we wouldn't demonize or, or chastise uh, a cancer patient, you right. know, or somebody that's dealing with MS or somebody that's dealing with diabetes. You know, I mean, the disease is a disease. Right. You know, I mean, that's that's what we have. I mean, we're no different than them is the way I look at it. And here's the other thing, too. In recovery, we're no different than them, too. Because as a diabetic, if I get find out I got diabetes today, I got to make changes tomorrow for the rest of my days to keep my disease in check. Well, guess what? When I got a mental health diagnosis and I'm also dealing with the whole alcohol and substance thing, mm-hmm. I got to make changes, okay, in my life starting today, every day for the rest of my life. Right. Because just like a diabetic, if for some reason you get laxed, lackadaisical, and, 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 and it gets away from you, you're going to have problems. Guess what? If we get complacent with the things we need to do on a daily basis, we subject ourselves to, in my case, a possible relapse or a, you know, a possible decline in our mental health. Right. Exactly. Disease is a disease. And that's kind of where the stigma of all this has kind of kicked in throughout the years to kind of be like, well, this disease is different. No, this is a chronic, progressive, and fatal disease. And yet, we don't offer the same support or rally around those impacted by this or celebrate those who are living that life of recovery, going against every fiber of their being at times that is crawling and saying, go back. And I know that's not what is in my best interest. That is not the lifestyle I want to live. That is not the person I want to be showing up as. And Mark, you are to a T, you know, what I believe really captures that what this podcast is all about. We're talking about those healing minds and living a life of recovery and the resiliency attached because each day is a challenge and each day you make that choice. And so I am forever grateful for you, you know, coming into my life and also sharing your story here with everybody that is fortunate enough to hear just where you've been and where you are going today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And I'm looking forward to the future podcast. And I'm, le- I'm looking forward to hear more about your story as well. well until next time, cliffhanger. Absolutely. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us today on Healing Minds, Stories of Resiliency and Recovery. If you're on the journey to find guidance and insights, subscribe now wherever you find your podcasts. Healing Minds Stories of Resiliency and Recovery is an educational resource, not a substitute for medical or therapeutic advice. The opinions expressed by the hosts and their guests are not necessarily those of Nami DuPage. Go to namidupage.org slash podcast for links to past episodes, show notes, and to submit a question or topic ideas for a future episode. Until next time, be well.